Hi all, welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Harless. And I'm your other host, Natalie. Natalie, I have just one question for you. Are you ready? Ready for what? Today, we get to see the plane of new Phyrexia. Join us as we head into the multiverse. Today's episode is episode eight of the Magic Story podcast, and we are in the heart of season two, which follows the two story tracks of the Brothers War. Today, we're recapping the events of track one, episode three, called Sword One by Miguel Lopez, as well as track two, episode three, called Nemesis by Reinhardt Suarez. So where did we leave off last time? Well, if you remember, we've been following track one, which takes place thousands of years into the past, and track two, which is the story of our Planeswalker friends in the present day, just after the events of Dominaria United. So far in track one, we got the turbulent, tragic, yet hopeful story of Kayla Ben Krug, the Queen of Pentagon, during her nation's collapse after a cataclysm called the Brothers' War. She endured so much, from devastation to hunger to a siege to seeing the literal Ice Age come to Dominaria. But ultimately, she found sanctuary for her people in a place called Yosha. Last we saw her, she had passed through her home city of Krug, which had been taken over by a warlord named Fask. Krug was definitely different than when Kayla last knew it. More ruined than not. But clearly, Krug had not always been this desolate. And we're going to see that in this episode. So this episode takes place 50 years prior to the events we saw with Kayla in the fall of Pendragon. We are in the city of Krug, during its heyday. Long before it was ever a ruin or Warlord Fask had taken it over. And it's on the precipice of war. The Brothers' War. Mishra's forces are at the gates of Krug. So just a little bit of context for you all. We've been mentioning the Brothers' War a lot, and we're familiar with one of these brothers, Urza. The people of Krug are allies of Urza. In fact, Thanos is here. Remember him? The artificer from previous episodes who helped Kayla construct the civils of Pentagon and set the factory on fire during the siege. Well, here is Thanos 50 years ago. He is young, ambitious, and Urza's most trusted apprentice. Who we haven't heard much about so far is Urza's brother, Mishra. We saw a construct of him when Joda entered the alternate realm from the orb last episode. Like with Urza, we're going to learn about Mishra's small bits at a time. And when we start this episode... It's unclear on Mishra's or Urza's status, where they are or what they're truly up to. All we know is that Mishra is angry, really angry, angry enough that he sent devastating hostile forces to the gates of Krug, starting a war. I am pining with curiosity, like what the heck happened between these two brothers? What did, right? Yeah, like what did Urza do to make Mishra so angry? They're brothers, right? Like, like yeah, it's just like, what happened like clearly we had gotten you know sentences that kind of stand out to me over over the course of the last few episodes you know like Kayla remarked that Urza and Mishra did terrible things because they couldn't talk to one another and it makes me wonder what happened you know like why are they so angry at each other we don't know from a reader's perspective at, at the start of this episode we really don't know what caused the start of the war all we know is that it was bad enough to start a war And part of that is because we've explained what the Brothers' War is years and years and years ago in Magic when the original Brothers' War set came out, which was 
quite a while ago. So really knowing what we know about Urza, we have discovered many flaws in Urza's character over the course of this season. So knowing what we know about Urza, it was probably pretty bad. Yeah. Probably, Mishra's probably overreacting a little bit, but just knowing Urza, it, it's it's maybe half deserved. <laughs> yeah, Urza doesn't seem like the nicest person. I mean, he was not nice to Karn. You know, if you remember from season one, he created Karn long, long, long ago. And we don't really, we haven't learned much about Mishra on the podcast so far. Mishra hasn't really been brought up that much, but... In order for two brothers to go to war with one another, we have to imagine something pretty cataclysmic happened between them. Now, for this episode, we are actually following the perspective of a new character. This is a young man named Sanwell. He's a student in the pilot program in Krug, training to learn how to operate these massive machines that they call Avengers. That's Avengers with a lowercase a. Now, Sandwell is a young Native American male. He has long dark hair that he wears in a braid. And his pilot garb is really gold and gray armor with these large shoulder pauldrons and a big artificer's belt. And Avengers are war machines. So these are Urza's designs. And this is back in Urza's heyday. So just to paint the the perspective over... This is Urza at the height of his power. This is Urza at the height of him designing these machines. And he has Thanos as his apprentice. And Thanos oversaw the Avengers construction himself. And now on the precipice of war at their doorstep, the commander of the Avengers program, a woman named Laura, promotes these students, including Sanwell, to just full-on pilots at on the spot. They're just like, you're no longer trainer, training anymore. You're no longer students. You're full-on pilots. They are now charged with the defense of Krug. And so Sanwell is understandably, he's very young, right? And Sanwell is both ecstatic and terrified. Yeah, it's completely understandable. I mean, his lifelong dream was to be a pilot. He went here for artificer school and he learned to be a pilot of this artifice. But now he's in the middle of war and he's realizing that, you know, what he, all the glory he dreamed of for wanting to be a pilot is really just a small piece of what it actually means to pilot one of these Avengers in the middle of a war. Yeah, it, his his dreams had been glorified up until this point. These are young students who's never really seen violence or war. And so just trigger warning to some of our listeners out there, this episode is actually going to be quite violent with uh, with some war scenes. And if that's not your cup of tea, you can skip to later into this episode when we're talking about uh, track two, or you can just skip to the next episode and we'll give you the recap without the nitty gritty details um, of the violence that is about to happen in Krug. Yeah, specifically if you're um, sensitive to descriptions of war, I do recommend that you just fast forward through this until when we are going to be talking about track two. So to operate in Avenger, Sanwell and the other pilots utilize this baton-like wand that tells their paired Avengers what to do. Sanwell is paired with an Avenger named Sword One, which is the namesake of the episode. And Sword One is said to be the most elite class of Avenger, the best Urza ever created. Thanos gives Sanwell a brief rundown that Sword One is more intuitive than most of the other Avengers. It will listen to him, but also interpret what the pilot commands. So while Sanwell and his other student friends, this includes Sanwell's best friend, Rika, prepare for battle, 
Sanwell is just marveling at Sword One's magnificence. Now, Sword One is huge. He is two or three times as tall as most people. He is a bipedal automaton of gray sheet metal and a dome-like helm, shaped kind of similarly to Karn, actually. The joints are rounded, humanoid, and Avengers wield these massive swords. Clearly, they are just just made for war, which we've seen is what Urza does. He makes war machines, and this one is elite. So let's remember that we are on the precipice of the Brothers' War, which, knowing Kayla's story, is referenced as the Cataclysm. So these war machines have the potential to be devastating. And from Sanwell's perspective, he had been training for years to operate something like Sword One. So it's just a beautiful machine to him. But we're about to see what it truly is like to be in war and that it's not always magnificent, right? That might be the wrong word. Like it just is so destructive. And we're about to see Sword One and, and these other Avengers just be pretty uh What's what's the right word that I'm looking for? Terrified? Terrifying. <laughs> That's the right word that I was looking for. I mean, they've had this, they've been in this artificer school. So imagine that it's not just like going to like a military training camp, it sounds like. It sounds like it really is like a school where you learn, you know, these people came here to learn how to be artificers and now they're going into war. They knew that this was a possibility, but now the reality of it is sinking in and they're they're afraid. Krug is not just faced with hostile forces, they're faced with devastating odds. So Mishra, it turns out, has launched his full strength at Krug. It's practically hopeless. And these kids realize that they have two options right now. They're either going to go into battle and they're going to come out or they're going to go into battle and they're not going to come back. Right. I I wonder what these students must be feeling right now. Being so young, thrust into the middle of war, on the spot. I think Sandwell might be in a bit of shock. (laughs) I mean, I would be. Yeah, and And the students are reacting differently, right? Like, one of them is practically frozen. One of them is concerned about their brother, who is also in the city, and all they can focus on is if their brother's going to be okay, if their brother's going to get out alive. And all of them are just kind of freaking out. I mean, Sandwell just kind of barfs up his non-breakfast at the very beginning. Just the emotions that are happening here are very, um, yep, they're materializing. (laughs) Yeah, it must be be so terrifying beyond words. And and we kind of see it right along Sanwell. Yeah. So at this point, a dragon engine appears on the horizon, prowling towards the city. Holy moly, a dragon. You said a dragon engine, right? Yeah, so we've mentioned dragon engines before. Remember... Every time we've mentioned a dragon engine, stuff's gone pretty, pretty poorly um, because these dragon engines are massive and they are forces of destruction. So Laura gives a powerful speech to these new pilots. They're not students any longer that they're the last hope for the people of Krug and immediately leads them into the fray. Wow. I remember the last dragon engine that we had talked about in season one. And it was terrifying. Joda and Miria, if you remember, back into that scene, right in front of the ruins of Krug, a dragon engine appeared and basically wiped out the entire forces. It was operated by Rona, if you remember this super epic scene in season one. These things, dragon engines, are deadly. Yeah, and the only way that the only way that Joda and Maria were able to defeat the dragon engine, if you remember, is by finding a powerful ancient artifact of Urza's own creation. So basically, they don't have that right now. Just they have these Avengers that Urza has created. So hopefully it's enough, right? Piloted by students. Let's piloted not they by were, students. They're kids. Yes. So 
The Dragon Engine breathes its fatal fire right into the central part of the city, just as Sanwell, Laura, and the other pilots move forward toward the siege gates. Now, Sanwell watches as his city goes up in flame. And as the city falls around them by the fire of the Dragon Engine, Mishra's human forces, the Falaji, what Sanwell and his friends also call the Brass Caps because of their brass-colored armor, breach the gates and flood the streets into chaos. So there's actually this art piece from the set that I can't get out of my head for the scene. It's an absolutely stunning piece, and it's called The Fall of Krug. And it's the silhouette of a dragon engine all wreathed in flame and shadow with the city burning around it. And you can see people fleeing for their lives by its feet. It's just an absolutely gorgeous and very stark, terrifying image. And I'm actually going to read to you what this scene, how this scene was written out word for word for you. Krug was burning and people choked her streets, fleeing the fire. Sanwell couldn't stop thinking about festival days, where competing parades to the many gods of Yosha snarled the wide brick boulevards and cheering crowds thronged in the side streets. The ringing of festival bells crashed and clamored through the city, a high and bright sound of chaotic joy that propelled and intertwined with the music that filled the air. Sanwell had been overwhelmed during his first festival season in Krug. By a second year in the city, he fell in love with it. Far from the ponderous ceremonies in Argive, the festivals in Krug and across Yosha were a bullion, alive. Never in his young life had Sanwell lived in a place where the gods were so close. And never did he imagine himself becoming someone who loved that proximity. Natalie, can I read the second part? Because this next line is so good. Yeah, go for it. But today in the blood slick red brick streets, the gods felt quite distant. I just love that line. The blood slick red brick streets. It just paints such a beautiful, like not a beautiful image, but it paints such a vibrant image of what's actually going on here. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I didn't mean to take that from you. I just had... Y'all, I majored in poetry. A good line just gets me. I had to. Natalie, back to you. Thank you. It's it's beautiful. No, yeah. You're totally right, Harless. And I'm just going to finish with this last sentence that just kind of really nails in the point. This day was a dark mirror to those celebration days. And each block, the pilots advance, plunged them deeper into that horrible mirror. The ringing bells today were the same bells that tolled on celebration days. Only now, they screamed. They screamed. God, this whole paragraph is so well written. I love it. Miguel Lopez, fantastic writer. Ah, fantastic writer. And y'all, Miguel works with us. Miguel is just one of those people that I think uh, when we were at an event for work, I just remember being introduced to Miguel and saying, oh, congratulations on being the most talented person I think I've ever known. Like Miguel is just so talented in so many ways. And it's such an honor to get to break this story apart. Um, And I'm just so enthralled with Miguel's writing. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Anyway, back to the story. So not giving up hope, Laura commands Sanwell, Rika, and their other cadet comrade, Carlo, to take down the dragon engine while the remaining two Avengers stay to protect the plaza. Let's go kill a dragon, Sanwell says. And I just love that because it just shows that he's still so naive. He's still a kid. He's just like, yeah, let's go kill a dragon. Totally unknowing the true danger. I think it has yet to hit him of the true danger that they're in. Yeah, unfortunately, their cadet status kind of shows here. They get an A for effort, but ultimately the dragon engine is just so powerful and they're going to fail to take it down. In one breath, the dragon engine decimates the plaza. Laura, the other cadets, all their forces, just ash. 
The three of them are the only ones left. They made it halfway down the alley before the dragon engine fired a blast into the plaza behind them. A roar, like the sky splitting open. A rippling crescendo of explosions. The boiling red mist scoured the plaza, blasting apart the Yoshin barricade and incinerating its defenders. Sanwell, Rika, and Carlo turned, looking on in horror as the crimson blast swept across their narrow view of the plaza. Laura and the other pilots, Lieutenant Marcos and their soldiers, gone in a breath. So Sanwell, Rika, and Carlo witnessed the full death of Krug right here. And to be honest- And their childhood along with it, right? Yeah, yeah. To be honest, they're, they're no longer naive at this point. I mean, Carlo goes crazy. He can't handle the sheer amount of death he's seeing right in front of him and just starts screaming in the middle of the battle. Rika and Sanwell have to literally drag him to safety while his Avenger is taken down by the Falaji. So they have no choice but to run, find safety somehow on the outer edges of the city. But the Falaji catch up to them. And with a volley of crossbows, they kill Carlo in the streets. Sword one. Poor Carlo. Carlo was really not able to handle the brutality of what was happening. And as Natalie pointed out, was kind of going between screaming and utter like complete silence and shock. He was in complete shock. complete shock. And so while Sanwell and Rika are able to kind of keep their wits about them, poor Carlo kind of didn't have a chance. And unfortunately, they have to sit there and watch as Carlo is taken down by those crossbows. Yeah, it's a it's a. A brutal moment. It's 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 pretty pretty bleak. And so Sword One and Sword Two, Sword Two is Rika's Avenger, do what they do best at this point, and they start attacking the Falaji brass caps. The marching soldiers were unable to form a pike wall before the two Avengers crashed into them. The front ranks died in chaos, their pikes skittering off the Avengers' armor plating. The two Avengers worked their great swords with a butcher's efficiency grinding the Falaji advance to a halt at the ruined barricade. Can I just call out a butcher's efficiency? It's just, we're starting to see what we meant by war machine yes. in this moment. A butcher's efficiency. Let's just, let's take that in. A butcher's efficiency. It's just, I, I, I'm getting chills. And I want to call- not the good way. <laughs> and I want to call out the line, they're great swords, because when this thing is saying they're great swords, these swords are, I think it said like, eight feet long and I in one foot they're massive massive and what's so crazy is that like that their blades actually dull in the middle of battle and they just like casually pull a new one out and replace it it these are war machines to that description I wish y'all could see my face I'm just basically covering my eyes because this, (laughs) this is like oh my god they're so brutal okay back into the quote Sandwell watched in horror and awe as the Avengers cut through the brass caps the sound of their swords buzzing through the air, the heavy, wet thunk of the blades meeting and separating flesh, smashing bone, crunching through the proud, bright Falaji armor as if it were little more than thin foil. Sanwell could only stagger backward, command rod level and aimed, and watch the Avenger interpret his most basic command. Sword one cleaved through the soldiers before it with expeditious strikes, short chops, one manipulator holding the hilt of its sword and one along the blade to guide it. So sword one truly shines in its terrifying glory here. And I'm going to read to you another quote, but before I do, I want us to to remember what Tano said about sword one 
that Sword One was the most elite of Urza's war machines. That it not only did as commanded, but it could interpret what the commander truly wanted it to do in, in terms of being as fatal and as lethal as possible. Who taught Sword One how to interpret his simple first command and translate it into movements Sanwell could not do himself? He had seen inside the older models as part of his training. They, like Sword One, were not alive. As he understood it, they could not think. They were machines, humanoid assemblies of a thousand complex calculations and delicate complications. Thousands of hours of genius and technical acumen and human labor set to a single purpose, achieved with uncanny grace, to swing a sword and end a life. Brilliance. Madness. Wow. So as Rika and Sanwell are watching their swords go in and just decimate these phalagi, a bomb gets the better of sword two. It blows out one of its arms and the phalagi take the rest of it down. Still, sword one fights on as the phalagi rush in toward Rika and Sanwell. In an utter panic, Sanwell gives sword one its last command, fight, and then drops the command one and flees with Rika for their lives out of the city. And I want to call out something. They're not running because they're scared. They're running like, yes, they're scared. That's why they're running. They're running because Tano specifically told them, if you are fearing, like if your life is in danger, run, just run, just, just flee. And so they are following orders. That was Tano's command. Yes, they're following orders. They are not just being like, oh, bye, peace. We're just going to let all these people die. And keep in mind, they just watched one of their comrades, one of their colleagues that they had been in this artificer school with, go down. So while they flee, Sword One keeps fighting on. This silhouette of death standing high above the soldiers trying to cut it down, slicing and slicing and slicing, unrelenting. Seriously, a war machine. And I'll leave you with this last line. Krug died on a crimson morning. The war began at sunrise. So we saw the very beginning of the Brothers War. I I don't have words for how bloody it was to read. We we left out a lot in our recap. We did. And how how hard it was to see the a dragon engine truly decimate a city. The last dragon engine we saw, it was devastating, but it didn't really pose a threat. But it was fighting a planeswalker and the leader of an elven um, community. Who stood a chance. And this... Who found an an old mechanism of Urza's that, like, basically the opposite of a cadet, right? The most seasoned people that could possibly have gone up against it. And they were able to take it down, but it took out... What what did it say, Natalie? It It took out, like, an entire forest with one rip of its claw? Yeah, with one, it did a swipe of its forward claw and just ripped out the entire forest around it because it's that big. But now it's doing it with people. With, I want to, I want to emphasize here, and I think this was the hardest part for me to read in this episode. These are innocent people. These are, these are just citizens of Krug suddenly being asked to march to their deaths because Mishra and Urza are at odds with each other. It just feels so unfair. <laughs> and th- I think that was the yeah. part that was hard to read about it is because I'm I'm watching this decimation unfold and this bloody, terrible, you know, like friends dying right in front of you 
for what? It, it just, it made me so angry deep down yeah. that this was happening to Krug and this was the death of Krug for, for what reason? And it just, it puts into contrast over why they started calling it the cataclysm in, in Kayla's story earlier on in the season. And you just saw the beginning of it. And it, it, I think anger is the right emotion here that I'm just feeling deep down over. I want to know why, why are these people dying? Why, why is all of this happening? It's just, I'm, the mystery is maddening. Yes. And I want to call out, you know, as this is happening, we're seeing the perspective of just a couple of soldiers who are going into battle. But as this is happening, the entire city is evacuating around them. And this dragon engine doesn't just decimate soldiers who chose to be there, right? As Natalie said, it took out a lot of civilians, a lot of innocent people who are just trying to get out of the city who don't care. But it's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. It's not, it, it, war is never fair. And this is no exception. Yeah. I, I just keep thinking back to this one sentence that Kayla said in, in episode one of, of this season is that Urza and Mishra forced terrible choices on their people because they couldn't talk to one another. And it just, wow, terrible choices is kind of an understatement in seeing what yeah. happened here to crew. Absolutely. So as we transition into track two, episode three. We're still following this theme of on the precipice of war. We know something big is about to happen in the current Phyrexian invasion. We know Elish Norn's big plans to use the world tree as a means to expand her dominion across the entire multiverse. And as of right now, our Planeswalker friends literally have no idea how to stop her. So in the last few episodes of track two, we've been following Teferi and his merry band of Planeswalkers in Urza's tower, trying to solve the mysteries of the past and figure out how Urza defeated the Phyrexians so long ago. Sihili created a time machine called the Temporal Anchor, and Joda unlocked the mysteries of the Starlight Orb, which held Urza's archival knowledge. Meanwhile, the other planeswalkers are off trying to recruit as many allies and find as much knowledge about the past as they can. Episode 3, however, we aren't in Urza's Tower. We aren't with Teferi or Kaya or Sihili. We are in New Phyrexia. So this is the first time that we're seeing new Phyrexia on this podcast. And for those of you who would like a verbal description I'm about to dive into, and for those of you who are visual, go check out some of the art. And how I'm going to describe this, I'm going to describe it the best that I can, is that this plane is just riddled in red, black, and white. And those are the colors of Elish Norn. And this place is just oozing this black oil. This is the home world of the Phyrexians. And there is these biomechanical intricacies that build bridges and whole cityscapes of these sharp edges. And I describe it almost as like thorny, like you're looking at the stem of a rose. It's deadly, but beautiful. And it's all filled with the mechanical tentacles of the Phyrexians and every being in this place is interconnected under the Phyrexian dominion. It's just this, I, I, I imagine it to be very quiet, but you can almost feel all of the voices and screaming underneath everything. It's just, it's this, this stark, creepy, just eerie sort of plane. And it's, it's just, it leaves me speechless sometimes of looking at, 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 what New Phyrexia is and, and hearing about New Phyrexia. Because it's also oddly beautiful. That's the thing. So Natalie said yeah. it's so Natalie said it's red, black, and white. So imagine this. The red is organic material. Imagine the red as muscle and sinew and blood and 
organ just organic material from primarily humans, right? That black is that oozing black oil, the Phyrexian oil that we see on everything that Phyrexians have anything to do with. And the white, white is marble. So it's stark, but it's beautiful. So imagine this like beautiful white marble hall, but half of, you know, but all the repairs that have been done in this place are repaired with organic material. And there's just this black oil oozing everywhere. So it is stark and dark and horrifying, but it's also weirdly beautiful. So at the very start of uh, track two, episode three, Tezzeret, we, we arrive with Tezzeret first thing. And Tezzeret, if you remember, we mentioned him last episode, and he is a planeswalker who has kind of been on the edge between being a villain and not. And here we are in the heart of New Phyrexia following Tezzeret. And Tezzeret is watching Karn being disassembled by Phyrexians. And Karn appears to be dead, but he's not. Tezzeret can sense that he is still cognizant, that Karn is still there, alive as much as a as an automaton can be alive. And a And he's he's kind of like he he's he's almost like annoyed with Karn because he can tell the Karn is still alive, but Karn's not protesting, Karn's not speaking. He's just perfect. Karn is just laying he's there. He's just lying there. He's not he, exactly like you said. He it's completely silent. You would think that he's dead, but Tezzeret knows that he's not dead. So deep down, I read this and I was like, "Yay, Karn's not dead." I, I mean, I knew he wasn't dead, but it was like. And then you immediately go, "Oh no, he's being disassembled." Yes, yes. <laughs> like, it, was, it was kind of a rejoicing moment of knowing that Karn wasn't dead, but what is happening to him? And so. A, that's the exact reaction I had. That's so funny. Like, I read it and I'm like, yay. Oh, no. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so Ajani's axe, if you remember, at the very end of season one, Ajani had just sliced his axe deep into Karn's chest when he uh, ambushed the planeswalkers on the mana rig. And that axe is still embedded into Karn's chest. And these Phyrexian machines taking them apart, imagine you're on this surgical table and... These machine arms are just, they even use the word dissecting him. And they're trying to literally take him apart. And let's remember that Karn is alive through all of this. So I can only imagine how painful this is for Karn, but he's not saying a word. He's not moving any of it. And here's where I'm going to tell you that if you are sensitive to body horror, maybe check out of this episode. Um, because, yeah, Karn's being dissected. Um, they are removing his limbs. They're just fully taking him apart. And Tezzeret is told by one of Elish Norn's followers to put every piece of Karn onto this like transport cart kind of thing and take it to Elish Norn. But you can tell Tezzeret's annoyed. He's really impatient. I mean, he's just down here. He's here helping. He's here, you know, for his own selfish reasons, but he's here helping. And everything is just being like, glory to Phyrexia. It's all about what Elish yeah. Norn wants. It's it, like there's these blind loyalty is is kind of how I how I describe it. And Tezzeret is just annoyed with it all. You can just sense that yeah. he is he's here because he's allied with the Phyrexians, but he's not enjoying himself. <laughs> it's not like no, he's, he's not having a good time here with Karn and doing Elish Norn's bidding. And this is when Ajani joins them. So in this room where Karn is being kind of taken apart and and, and Tezzeret is trying to put him on the, to this transport vehicle to bring before Elish Norn. 
Ajani walks in and Ajani is totally Phyrexianized at this point. He speaks only as a unified voice of Phyrexia and he goes on about the glory of what's being done to Karn and, you know, that the, the Phyrexian shall prevail and that it is, it is the path to beauty and, and all of that stuff. And it's just, it's heartbreaking to see a Johnny, like this, this amazing Leonin planeswalker that I've fallen in love with uh, through, through season one. And now he's just a tool of Elish. Reciting Phyrexian scripture, like a robot. Yeah. 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 It's hard. But it's like, there's this moment, right, where Tezzeret, Tezzeret says that he's not fit to go in front of Elish Norn. And it's revealed here that uh, Shieldred is not dead. Tezzeret had just been tasked with saving her from the mana rig. And so he's completely like in, in disarray after saving her and making sure that she was safely back on New Phyrexia. And Ajani at this moment just tears off his cloak and gives it to Tezzeret. And this cloak is actually Elspeth's. And he's giving Elspeth's cloak to Tezzeret with like hardly a blink. And so Tezzeret wonders, is this some sort of sign? Because we knew Ajani and Elspeth were so close. And Ajani just gives a Tezzeret Elspeth's cloak. It's like, is, is this Ajani, true Ajani, trying to speak to Tezzeret in this moment. And Tezzeret kind of picks up on that. Or, or is he so Phyrexianized that he doesn't care That's that this the is other, Elspeth's cloak? Yeah. It could really go either way. And we don't know, but Tezzeret feels this like twinge of hope almost. That maybe a Johnny is still there, right? And and a part of me, like my heart just jumped re- like reading this. I know. Where I'm like, oh, is it? Is it a sign? We, we yeah. don't know. But that gives me, oh, could you imagine what if what if Ajani's still in there somewhere? And Ugh. he can't he can't speak to Tezzeret. He can't speak anything other than Phyrexian scripture, basically. And he gives Elspeth's cloak, his his dearest friend, right? Elspeth is is his dearest friend, and he gives this cloak to Tezzeret as a way to try and convey that he's still there. I just like, oh, like my my heart just kind of jumped and I I'm I'm holding on to this hope, even though I probably know that it's a false hope. It just it just gave me this little shirt. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting situation because essentially what's happening is this follower of Elish Norn is trying to get Tezzeret to um, just go and meet with Elish Norn and take all of these parts of Karn. And he's trying to find these excuses not to partially, I think, because he's just annoyed with being ordered around all the time and never told why he's doing anything he's doing. Yeah, just a little yeah. annoyed. So then Johnny rips off his cloak and hands it to Tezzeret and is like, here, clean yourself with this. So he didn't need to do that, right? So that's why I feel this like little bit of hope too. So if anyone can push through being Phyrexianized, my hope is that it's a Johnny. Please let it be a um, Yes, be a Johnny. So Tezzeret, he doesn't really have a choice here. He has to go take Karn's disassembled body to Elish Norn. And he moves across the Phyrexian city. And we're given a description of that underworld that I'm going to read for you here. No light from New Phyrexia's white mana sun penetrated the compounded layers above. Instead, the structures of the layer itself provided illumination. The walls of the basilica, composed of ossified Phyrexian corpses, honored in death, shed pale white light. Crimson capillaries etched into the marble-esque floor oozed a blood-red glow. The guide turned and led the way across the bridge. 
the miasma surrounding them darkening as they ventured further into the bowels of the plane. Tezzeret followed, Karn's platform hovering between them. Soon, the fair basilica was out of sight. The monuments of tendon and bone defining the machine orthodoxy replaced by the towering columns of the mycosynth, the unique growth that ran rampant over the core of the plane. Tezzeret viewed the mycosynth with equal measures of awe and wariness. In a way, it was the ultimate organism, alive and abundant. Its metallic lattice is perfect a crystalline structure as any artificer could render. But the mycosynth hit a danger. Prolonged exposure to it rendered metal into flesh and vice versa, explaining the partially metallic natures of the few remaining murins as well as the inability of Phyrexians to attain holy metal forms. So Tezzeret is following this guide who has been tasked to, come, I shall bring you to Elish Norn. And Tezzeret has been irritated this whole time. And he is very irritated with this as he's talking with this guide who just has this blind loyalty to the mother of machines. And Tezzeret actually calls followers like this guide just buffoons. He... He's just, he seems annoyed at their like blind loyalty at this point. Like you can tell he's been here. He's been around them for a little while and it's just getting old, I think. Yes. Like the constant reciting of the Phyrexian scripture, the constant, like not knowing what's going on, but being expected to participate in it. I think part of his irritation is that Tezzeret, Tezzeret is loyal to Phyrexia and he is here serving Elish Norn. But he also has retained much of his own personality and free will. And I think what's irritating him is that he feels like he's the only one who does. And, and that he is kind of singled out because of that. He's not blindly loyal. And he can't help but call other Phyrexians who just blindly follow and not think for themselves buffoons. And his consciousness, his, his ability to not be blindly loyal is also a, there's a bloom of paranoia within him too. That's right. Because he he has betrayed Elish Norn. Yes, he has. Oh my gosh. And he was he was behind helping the Planeswalkers know of Vorenklex. So he actually hired, secretly hired Kaya to destroy Vorenklex. And he's also been working with Urbrask, which is a insider, right, that has been revealing plans of Elish Norn. It's like the only reason why we know Elish Norn has the ability to gain dominion over the multiverse is because Urbras told them. So Tezzeret is paranoid that Elish Norn is going to discover his treachery, that Elish Norn secretly knows that Tezzeret is not fully loyal to her. And she, Elish Norn, we're starting to learn, does not take disloyalties lightly. There is only 100% loyalty to her or there's no loyalty at all and you're gone. So he is starting to be a little bit paranoid that he might be walking into a trap here. Yeah, and he kind of has this as a really instant realization of, oh, wait, why does she want to see me? Why am I going here? And he's worried that Elish Norn is seeking his end. So instead of just following this guide blindly to Elish Norn's rooms, he kills the guide. He takes a spear and just rams it through this guy. He is like, and what's so cool is that Tezzeret is chillingly well-suited for Phyrexian assassination. He knows all their weaknesses. And he even says, actually, Natalie, can you read this quote? Because I think it really explains how he's feeling here. Fortunately for him, he'd at this point seen many Phyrexians in battle. Their power was in shock and surprise. 
limbs twisting in impossible ways, mandibles erupting from odd places on the body. Distraction. All of it. Tezzeret kicked the floating platform to knock the guide to the ground. Then he circled around to stand over the prone Phyrexian and with a single well-placed thrust, ran it through. All distraction. I love that. He has been with them so long that he has stopped being shocked by the body horror aspect of it. And now he's just expecting it. He can use it against them, which is really amazing. And this is how he knows exactly how to kill them with calculative ease. So Tesseret actually, he's heading into the Mycosynth Garden, uh, which is where the guide was taking him. So presumably is where Elish Norn is. But here he finds a tower. And it's completely dark steel, the entire thing. But he knows that this tower could be useful to him if he can only figure out how to open it. And so he casts this spell where he puts this like luminescent kind of powder all over the tower and it reveals the shape of a door, but there's no way to open the door. Now, at this point, he hears a voice and it's Karn. Karn just, Karn just wakes up at this point and speaks to Tezzeret. From his, let's remember that he has this mangled body collapsed into this vehicle platform that he's been transporting to, that he's been transported to Elish Norn. And he just speaks so calmly. And it, it's funny because Tezzeret was trying so hard to get into this tower. He tries everything that he can and he shouts, this is madness. And Karn replies, it is. And and Tezzeret responds here. Uh, and, and, I, and I quote for you from the exact story. Father of machines, said Tezzeret. I'm strangely pleased your demise has been overstated. Hello, Tezzeret, Karn answered. I am not pleased with any of these circumstances. Escape, then. You still have your mind. Rebuild your body on another plane. And Karn responds, I have tried, but the Phyrexians have bonded some kind of material to me, impending interplanar travel. I am tethered here. So Karn would have planes walked away a while ago, but we had kind of foreseen this in season one, that the Phyrexians kind of hold him from doing that. He his his planeswalker magic is is kind of impeded due to the Phyrexians. So he's been trapped here this whole time. And it becomes known to us if you're just like us getting caught up with magic lore that Phyrexia, this plane that we're on, was once Karn's homeworld. He lived here and he knows it well, which means he can help Tezzeret get inside that tower. And so this strange alliance is made between these two planeswalkers in this moment. Now, Karn instructs Tezzeret to remove his head. Essentially, Urza had put a little ba very basic mechanism on his neck that allows his head to be removed from his body. So he's like, hey, you just got to take off my head. No and, big deal. Just um, take off my head. No big deal. Yeah, just take off my head and I'll help you get into this tower. So Karn has to instruct Tezzeret how to take off his head. And it's it it's super complicated artificing skill. And it shows Urza's skill in artificing that Karn can be disassembled, but the Phyrexians couldn't figure it out when Karn was lying there on the table. So that just says something about how skillful Urza is. Which is kind of crazy too, because it, uh, Tezzeret describes it as like a really simple buckle mechanism. So it's it's not hard. They just didn't think of it, I guess. Like, or they just didn't notice it or they didn't, you know, they, they did. who would imagine that someone has a fail safe where they can take their head from their body, to be fair. Yeah, or maybe they just overthought it. Maybe they thought it was going to be a super powerful spell, like what Tezzeret thought it should be. But, you know, right. Karn just says, Urza always trusted his artificing skills more than magic. 
And so it's, yes. I think it was simpler than the Frexians thought it was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're like, oh, how do we disassemble this part? Oh, I guess you can't. Who would think you could remove a head just from, from a, a torso buckle, and it would still like, survive? I, I just kind of imagine yeah. that it's just like this clasp <laughs> that you just kind of like, chink, chink, and there's, there's his head. Like a belt yeah. buckle, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and then his head just rolls off. Um, so Card uses his abilities to redirect the metal of Tezzeret's body to attune with the dark steel door blocking the tower. Of, of course he does. Of course he does. It's Karn. Because he has that ability yes. to be able to just redirect the metal of Tezzeret's body to be able to access through this dark steel door. Of course. Right. But, you know, remember, he's lived here, too. So he knows exactly That's how to true. do this to get into the tower. Yeah. And so the room opens and beyond is the dark steel eye. Elish Norn had restored it in her power and her glory. So this is an artifact as big as a room. It's described as an elongated diamond shaped monolith mirror like eyes. So there's multiple. And this grants visions across New Phyrexia. So Tezzeret seeks the answer to how Elish Norn plans to invade the multiverse. He sees legions outfitted for war all across the plain. But the Eye will not divulge Norn's secrets. He tells Karn, I saw annihilation, the fate that awaits us all when he leaves the tower. And Karn and Tezzeret have this brief discussion right here over whose fault is it really that the impending war is on the horizon? Is it Karn's or Tezzeret's or both? It's both. It, definitely both. It's definitely both. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's kind of revealed here just how just how loyal Karn was to Phyrexia once upon a time. It just, I, I didn't know this prior to this episode, but Karn was very loyal to Phyrexia once upon a time. And I, you know, that that is a surprise to me who's getting caught up on lore of Karn's past. And... Because Karn is so heroic and, you know, we spent so much of season one talking about Karn's humanity despite being a golem. And now we're seeing not only is it despite being a golem, it's despite being once part of New Phyrexia. It's despite once being, you know, Urza's close confidant. It's despite so many things. And there was a line in season one where Karn kind of alluded to this and he kind of said that he doesn't feel like he is blameless. And here it's kind of coming out a little bit more why that is. Yeah. And it's interesting because he and Tezzeret are two people who have done bad things who are now working together. So it's it's a really interesting moment. And they actually bring up Nicol Bolas here. So Nicol Bolas is an elder dragon. And I'm actually going to let Natalie tell us a little bit about what happens next. I, I just, I want, you know Nicol Bolas better than me. So do you just want to? Sure. Like Nicol Bolas. Yeah. Yeah. Nicol Bolas is a character we talked about a few episodes ago about the War of the Spark. And that was Nicol Bolas. He was the the god pharaoh, the the necromantic dragon that nearly brought the end to many of our planeswalkers and really divided the planeswalker loyalty. So some planeswalkers were loyal to Nicol Bolas, some were loyal to the Gatewatch, and that split caused, you know, death for some of our planeswalkers. And Tezzeret was on the side of Nicol Bolas, but he actually admits here to Karn that he's glad Bolas is dead because Bolas kind of, he almost held a, held a grudge against Tezzeret because Bolas thought that Tezzeret owed him blind loyalty because Bolas saved him. And so now we're seeing this pattern again where Tezzeret is loyal to Elish Norn, but he's getting irritated that Elish Norn demands blind loyalty, sort of like how Nicol Bolas did. Um, and also there is a amazing moment here of Tezzeret's character. I, I I don't think I can overstate just how 
cool this moment is because we always assume Tezzeret as a one-dimensional villain. He he chooses the quote-unquote wrong side, it seems. Like, he chose the side of Nicole Bolas, which we, like, obviously we're going to cheer for the Gatewatch, so we're going to be like, boo, Nicole Bolas. But it's really cool seeing from Tezzeret's perspective here over the layers are very, very complicated. And there is more going on here over why Tezzeret chooses to follow those he does. There's a reason why he chose to follow Nicol Bolas. And there's a reason here again as to why he's choosing to follow Elish Norn. It's not so choosing good and evil. And it's just it's not black and white. Yeah, it just blew my mind here. So actually, Harless, I'm going to have you read this moment to us because it just gave me chills over realizing how complicated this actually is. It's always so simple to you. All of you simpering fools pretending your hands are so clean. The shining heroes come to eradicate the foul, the profane, the evil. Tezzeret felt his mask of congeniality burn away. You speak of our responsibilities? You could have taken responsibility for your choices, embraced your position as lord over Nuphorexia. Surely it would have been better than the paradise promised by Elish Norn. He stumbled to his feet and picked up Karn's head. Every day that I live is one more that I have fought for. Every breath I draw is one closer to... To what? Freedom. Well, that's what he wanted to say. But in the same breath, another word edged on his lips. Completion. So Tezzeret knows what's happening to him. He's fully aware that he is slowly going towards completion. And let's, let's remember completion meaning the, the Phyrexianization that happens, that you, you, that what happened to a Johnny was completion. And he's fully aware and Tezzeret is half embracing that and half fighting it. It's just so cool to see that it's not black and white, like you said, Harless. This isn't choosing good and evil. It's, this is, this is who Tezzeret is. And he, he has reasons for his choices. Um, and Karn is actually awakening here Tezzeret's suppressed fight on, on this completionism that he's fighting the more that they talk. And Tezzeret actually really becomes angry at Karn. And Karn just calls Tezzeret right out on his conflicting conscience as he's as Tezzeret is literally fighting away the Phyrexian scripture and words that's running through his head that's telling him to obey and follow. And he is like actively fighting against it. It's, it's just this cool moment where there is much more to Tezzeret. There's just some complexities about him that is revealed here. Yeah, it's really interesting because, okay, so Tezzeret is waiting for this reward from Elish Norn, which we learn is completion. He wants to become Phyrexianized. What a juxtaposition to the fact that he hates blind loyalty. Yeah. All Phyrexianization is, is blind loyalty to whoever the Phyrexian leader is at the time and to New Phyrexia and to just Phyrexianization as a whole. Those two sides of him are warring with each other. And maybe, just maybe, that's why he's been helping out these other planeswalkers. That he's... Yeah. But I don't, I don't know if he even knows it himself, I, that's the why thing. he's doing it. I don't it. think Tezzeret... I think there are pieces of Tezzeret that are operating in conflicting nodes of himself where he's not fully conscious of why he is doing these things, but he just knows that there's a purpose for both. And they're, they're just, like you said, just absolutely warring within him. And he doesn't know which one's going to win out. Yeah. So they set out to find Elish Norn in the Mycosynth at this point, having found out everything he could from the Darksteel Tower. 
And I'm going to quote again here from the story. Tezzeret wound about the mycosynth garden, following the grade of the land as it decreased, figuring that he was looking for the lowest point possible on the plane. His bet proved right as he came across a newly constructed staircase right in the very center of the garden. He neither remembered the staircase nor the odd spiky shoots that superseded the mycosynth from his previous visits this far into the plane. Tezzeret did remember what was underneath his feet, though, the very heart of Nuphorexia, which is Karn's old throne room, we find out. So proceeding down the steps and into a dark tunnel, he readied a spell in case of attack. If memory served, he'd eventually come to a metal door the width and height of a giant, festooned with gears and cogs, but there was no such door. Instead, the mouth of the tunnel led out into what had been the chasm-like chamber where Karn's throne sat. Only the throne was no longer visible underneath a tangle of thick, armored cables that coiled around it, spiraling up to the ceiling of the chamber. The scene was bathed in a pulsating red glow, a heartbeat. So I want to emphasize a couple of words here that just gave me chills because it was the first time that I had read them getting caught up on magic lore like we are, right? Karn's throne. So Karn could have been the lord of Nuphrexia. Like, I, I didn't know this and I was just like stunned, like my mouth dropped open when I read that, that Karn had a throne room. Like there was, there was once upon a time when Karn was so powerful in Nuphrexia that he could have been the lord of it. And it kind of sows a little bit of a mystery that I've been thinking over why Shieldred had called him the father of machines, right? They kept referencing him as father, which means that Karn has a pretty complicated past here with Nuphorexia. So I just wanted to highlight that, that we hear Karn's throne that's still there in a chamber in a throne room. Um, it's just, it, it just gave me chills. <laughs> So the two are, they find, the two finally find Elish Norn and she's sitting by a pool. Elish Norn, of course, being the mother of machines. And Tezzeret remarks that she seems in a good mood, which he views as a bad sign. And as Natalie just uh, mentioned, she greets Karn as father. Now, Tezzeret is ready for his reward. Okay, so he he wants a new body, an immortal one, what not slowly being destroyed by the planar bridge within his. Uh, he doesn't want to die. I mean, dang, that's kind of understandable. I hate to say it. But if you were in Tezzeret's position, offered an escape from doom, right? He has this planar bridge within him that is slowly eating away his mortality. You were offered an escape from, from that death, from that horrible death. Wouldn't you take it? If you were, if you were in Tezzeret's position, like no matter the cost, I don't, yeah, that's, that's a tough choice. It really adds to the grayness of Tezzeret's character and really not being black and white. And I really love how much he does to show us like, there is no good and evil. There are people who do good things and those people are capable of doing bad things. And there are people who do bad things and those people are capable of doing good things. And I think Tezzeret is like the epitome of that concept. Absolutely. But as he gets in here, you know, he's like, okay, here's Karn. Where's my reward, basically? And Elish Norn's response is patience, which sends him into a state. He is so irritated. Patience? What do you mean? What more do you want from me is basically I've what he's saying patient. internally. Yeah. He's just like, what more do you want, Elish Norn? I brought you Karn, the father of machines, the person you have been wanting to, to have as, as at your disposal. And I've, I've delivered him literally to your feet. What more do you want from me? And so no wonder he's irritated. Patience. Yeah. Patience. And actually, this makes him doubt whether Elish Norn even had intentions of rewarding him at all. And and kind of he he kind of, like you said, Harless, goes into a state over this. He's just distraught. He is 
irate. I, I like I can't even put the right word. It's beyond angry. At this I point. think he's enraged. Yeah. There's also one other thing that is introduced in this scene, and Elish Norn refers to it, and this is the first time that we're hearing about it too. She calls it the realm breaker. And this is basically an artifact? Question mark. I think it's an artifact. We don't really know at this point. That is capable of it, it, it essentially has the essence of Kaldheim's will tree. And this had been hinted in the last episode that this was what Elish Norn's plan was. But here we see it. She actually has it in hand and she's calling it the Realm Breaker. And it has the capability of joining the entire multiverse of of rendering planes as not planes somehow. It's like it's it's here. It is. We are literally seeing it as this is this is Elish Norn's ultimate weapon and even Tezzeret has a little bit of uh, a little bit of um, fear trickling down his spine on hearing the term realm breaker. I mean, it's just it it is kind of creepy hearing that. <laughs> so combining this news of the realm breaker with her response of being patient, this is how he responds. He locked his eyes on Elish Norn, pouring all his scorn, all his rage, all his hate into her image so that he would never forget this moment. This moment when everything became clear. If it was a war Urabrask wanted, he would get such a war. Tezzeret would make sure of it. Oh, tasty rebellion. He's so mad. He's so over it. So at this point, Tezzeret returns to the battle preparations and he runs into Rona, who we remember from um, season one and running the dragon engine. I mean, Rona just keeps showing up. This woman cannot be taken down, apparently, despite Karn's best efforts, despite... She is tough as nails. She is able to come back and be badder than ever. Like she, she cannot be destroyed. Rona is tough and, and she has proven it time and again, because like you said, Harla, she's, she's come back operating a dragon engine. And then she made, here she has actually made greater modifications to herself. So she's even deadlier. She's even better Phyrexianized now. It's just like, Rona is a pretty significant character. Yeah, and she's a clearly extremely talented artificer. She just keeps augmenting her own self to make her better and better. She It seems like she keeps learning from every um, interaction she has with the Planeswalkers and altering her own self to meet up, to be able to rise up to that threat, which, oh my God, uh, can, can I just be, like, I don't condone anything Rona is doing, but like, I would follow her, I think, just because of her sheer amazingness, just how tough and great and how much she's able to change and grow. Like, it's honestly really... Beautiful to yeah. see it, except that it's being used for evil. Yeah. If only it were being used for good, then then we would love yeah. Rona. But unfortunately, Rona is a big thorn in our side here. And so there's and so for all these reasons, that's why she is Shieldred's basically captain. And and she is yeah. she is the commander of Shieldred's forces. And that's why we saw her so much in season one. So Tezzeret is obviously so just to pave what's gonna what's gonna happen next is that Tezzeret is the number one confidant of Elish Norn right now. And and Rona is the number one confidant of Shieldred. So they're both kind of equal playing fields in terms of command in, in the Phyrexian armies. But as we know about Tezzeret, he does not like blind loyalty. He does not like being bossed around. So this is actually going to come to heads here with Rona. Yeah, so Rona is pretty nasty to Tezzeret. He basically comes in and is like, hey, give me a report. And she's like, I don't report to you. Uh, no. And Tezzeret really manipulates Rona here. He lashes out and she calls on her followers, but he knows that her followers aren't going to come because they're Phyrexian and they respect these displays of 
leadership and power. So she's calling out for her followers to come help her, but no one is coming. And Tezzeret's spells are so powerful that he nearly kills her with the magic from his planar bridge, but he ultimately spares her. I do love how he takes her down in this fight though. All these augmentations she's made on herself are metal. She's being being like an originally an organic being. She's augmented herself with metal and not the other way around. So he takes the metal and like triples it so that she just collapses to the ground with the weight of it, which I thought was really clever. So Tezzeret at this point, he, you know, he spares her and she reluctantly follows his command. And she's like, all right, here's what's up. Here's what's going on. And she tells him that even though they suffered losses after the manor rig, more Phyrexian forces are being built. The elites, as they are called, which is scary to me because the last time we heard the word elite was with Sword One. Yeah. And we don't really know what these elites are. All we know, all I can pick up on is that I think this is bad news. I think elites are yeah. something special that we have yet to see and we're about to. Yes. So these elites, as they are called, are un- under Rona's command. And now they are also under Tezzeret's command. And so Tezzeret just has this thought and we're going we're gonna to leave you all with this, with what Tezzeret kind of thinks to himself. And he goes, well, well, Tezzeret thought, we shall see which one of us is more patient beloved mother. Ooh, so he is ready to rebel, it sounds like. The different type of perspective that we get in Nemesis in in episode three is pretty, I think, pretty telling for how complicated the impending war is about to be. This isn't just good versus evil. We are torn because after reading all this, I question whether a Johnny is truly quote unquote evil. I, I want to, I, is, is it just as it's said from the perspective of the Planeswalkers where once you go Phyrexian, it can't come back? I, I wonder if that is actually true. You know, there's one thing that we forgot to mention actually that I want to make sure we get in here, which is when Karn is taken to Elish Nord, he starts babbling about Joyra and how Joyra is his best friend. And it seems like he's intentionally making her think that he is just a confused, messed up mess from the the, the axe he got to his sternum, from being disassembled, from being down here at all. And so he is clearly playing a game. And I'm really interested to see how that plays out, because I think if he went in there fully cognizant and was like, what are you doing to me? Or why are you doing this? Or I'll get you <laughs> or anything like that. It could have ended very differently. But now she's sitting with Karn's head which is such a creepy image. And he is just kind of rambling incoherently. So she doesn't catch on that he's still completely coherent. He has all of his mental facilities. He's still able to think, but he doesn't want her to know that. So I'm really interested to see what he's doing there. Like, what is, what is, how is he tricking her? Maybe he's just figuring out what's going on and playing it cool for now. But I'm really excited to see that Karn is in his own way fighting back right now. And I also cannot let this go. Karn has a throne room, which makes me wonder if if it was a choice for all these Phyrexians between the mother of machines or the father of machines, who are they going to follow? And and we can see now with this with this confrontation between Tezzeret and Rona that Phyrexians tend to follow the strong. Phyrexians tend to follow those with the loudest voice in, 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 in a sense. And I use voice as this. Um, this tendency to be the the embodiment of Phyrexian power. And Tezzeret is really good at posing at that. And, and I wonder if Karn is hiding this internal ability to be able to dip back into that. 
And so I just, I'm totally speculating Ooh. there. What if there is a division in the command under Elish Norn where some of these Phyrexians will start to remember Karn as he was and that he is the father of machines and Elish Norn is a pretender. I'm totally speculating, but I wonder, I just wonder whether there's something there with Karn having an actual throne room. And and it was mentioned so so blatantly in this episode. It's just my mind is running. And then on the opposite side of that, why would Elish Norn invite him there if that's a possibility? So it's interesting. Like, what is she thinking? We have so many questions that we will answer for you in the next episode. As always, you can find the full story at mtgstory.com. We always encourage you to go and read that full episode and pick up on all this stuff that we weren't able to cover. I know you all might have as many questions as we do, and we'll just have to find out in the next episode. Until then, have, have a magical, magical day. day.